1: Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. As we all know, the world has tilted, shifted much more rapidly than imagined or expected. From severe actualization of climate change on those who contribute to it the least, human population expansion, to shifts in power and affiliations on both local and global global government and power plays corruption and added pressures of transnational wildlife crime conscripting local communities for cash in what is still rampant poverty and in otherwise wealthy nations wealthy in terms of rich resources increased economic stability and well-to-do middle classes as well as well-padded upper classes who've been top feeding all along to the global shifts in the donor landscapes as well then along comes a new book the Big Conservation Lie, two African voices pulling the curtain back to expose what I have long called conservation colonialism. In a time where our planet is facing tremendous pressures from people to landscapes and what is on many people's minds today in a world where animal rights and welfare has risen to the top of just about everyone's mental landscape, conservation and saving of disappearing species. My guest today is Mordecai Ogada, along. long whom, with his co-author John Imb- Imbaria, wrote this big little read in a very groundbreaking book that lays open topics that are sure to be a game changer in the world of conservation. So, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest, Mordecai Ogata. Uh, welcome.
2: Hi, everyone. It's great to be with you.
1: It's great to be talking to you. I've been reading this book. I still haven't finished it, and no, we're not going to give it away. You're still going to have to read it, and I definitely suggest my listeners read this, because this is huge. It's a tiny book, but as I said, it is jam-packed with information from the voices that have been long missing from the conservation conversation. So, Mordecai, um, let's start with a little background about you.
2: Yeah, yeah. Th- thank you. Um, I'm a Kenyan conservationist. Um, my background is in is in biology, but my my, my affinity for conservation came up from being of, often exposed to wildlife and wild places by my parents when I was younger. So we've always, uh, my siblings and I have always enjoyed being around wildlife. Um, I, studied, I studied zoology and ecology in my, in my undergraduate and master's degree, respectively. And I, and I studied carnival and wetlands biology for my PhD. I worked... I worked uh, for some time in the in the in the non-governmental organization sector conservation civil society and this is where this is where I got to observe up close these these issues around conservation and the, this is what how I formed the questions in my mind over the the 17 years or so that I've been involved in the sector
1: Seventeen years—that's—that's that's a long time. Yeah. So, um, how did you and your co-author John Umbaria meet?
2: Yeah, we, we met when when I was when I was uh, when I was the direct the director of, of a conservation um, NGO called Likipia Wildlife Forum, and uh, I we had built a fence to separate uh, wildlife habitats from farmlands as a way of mitigating conflict between people and. And elephants. And Mbaria was an environmental journalist, and he wrote an article calling the fence uh, a fence to separate the haves and the have nots, <laughs> which, which, was, which was certainly not the, the intention of building it. But uh, a further examination of the maps showed that the people on one side of it were the haves, and the people on the other side of it were the have nots. So this started a conversation between us and 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 that's that's how that's how we eventually met through this dialogue through the written word really
1: and you've mentioned Lykepia, which is very much in the news right now, and hopefully we can maybe touch on that just a little bit because it is of concern uh not only internationally and what we're going to talk about tourism but to Mm. the pastoralists and their cattle um the international news likes to headline it as land invasions but from the african local perspective and the big conservation lie uh There's a whole other perspective we can look at this with, and I would just like to mention some emphasis here for my listeners. We're not talking about conservation is a lie. Conservation is necessary, and it's done by a whole lot of people in a whole lot of ways, which is what we're going to talk to. What we're talking about is the concept of big conservation, um, which Mark Dowie highlighted back in the 1990s and early 2000s as the bingos, big international NGOs. And this is what this jam-packed little book is mostly focused on, big conservation, which um, sort of translates into big money. So... Um, yeah Let's let's go ahead and get started. Um, where did this book come from? You 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 met John, and yeah. both of you sort of started sparking questions. So how did this come together?
2: Yeah, after we started after we started um, talking more around these issues, I I came to to start appreciating his, his perspective as, as that of, of someone who's from outside the sector. Because again, again the, the, the conservation sector, particularly the civil society and the bingos, as you, as you rightly describe them, it's an all-encompassing and almost uh, stifling environment where the message is everything. And you rarely hear anything from the outside different from the message you rarely hear about difficulties you rarely hear about um, problems in the way they've done things so as this con as this uh, conversation went on we started thinking about about uh writing this down and and getting the message out and the question was the medium through which to do it and um, and uh, with with uh, with uh, the perspective Barry had was having, been someone who's who who had been writing for for daily and weekly newspapers for for a number of years before we met, he he had the appreciation of how long or how short the lifespan of a newspaper article is in people's minds, and that brought up the 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 need for us to write something more more durable if we will and and uh and then so i thought about book chapters or or journal articles but then again i could not find or or see any any journal or or book that would properly cover the big picture in the way we wanted to journals will cover ecology they will cover uh, physiology other branches of science increasingly specialized and then and then, uh, but they, they will not cover the sociological aspect or the, or the human dimension, as you'd call it. So we decided that um, putting together a book would be would be the best way to do it. So and it, it was, it really grew organically just from uh, our, our mutual feeding off each other's experiences and perspectives.
1: So the amount of research that has gone into this book. It will be news to a lot of the Western communities, the donor community, and perhaps, well, maybe not. Uh, I was going to say, and perhaps some of the conservation community, but Mm -hmm. I think that's what uh, the big conservation lie is all about, is exposing that a lot of this isn't news. So uh, without giving the book away, I think we do need to give a start. And as I had said earlier, Colonialism, and this is where the book starts. So, perhaps give us just a short little summary of why going back that far is critically important, because this is the setup for the lie.
2: Yeah, I I think it's 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 very important because because um, when. Around the time when, when, when particularly British colonialists um, established colonies in Africa, it was, it was in the Victorian age. And during that time, during that time, the, the job of conservation of gamekeepers in Victorian feudal England was basically to keep the, the, the commoners from utilizing wildlife. For survival, so that the nobles could utilize it for recreation, um, this is what this is what came with the colonialists, and and following following the following the the Second World War particularly, or or perhaps both World Wars the, in which Britain Britain was involved, a, a huge. Uh, proportion of their male population of these countries went out to fight the wars. And at the end of the wars, they got demobilized and a lot of them were awarded with land grants in the colonies. And, um, these were, these, so these, this, this ilk of people formed the, the, the early pioneers sort of in, in land management, in dealing with wildlife, etc., And, um, they started. They started doing tourism, particularly for hunting, and they became, by default, the nobles in these in these new colonies. Even though many of them were not from from noble descent, back back in England.
1: A lot of them but, were rather rogues in their own way.
2: Yes, yes. <laughs> to put it mildly, but <laughs> but they found themselves in a, in a position of nobility, which which which. Uh, many of them, many of them grasped, grasped with with alacrity and and uh, and and reveled in, but now they became nobles and they were they were subjects of all sorts of romantic books, and uh, and uh, later on films and their their hunting exploits were stuff of legend and they, this is the romance that gave rise to the tourism industry, well, which, it, it which,
1: not only tourism as we know it now because i want to back up a second yes. it gave rise to where your book starts which is also a really important point to get across the um adventurer so yes. we had you know back in in these days the early explorers the net the royal Ge- geographic society sending yes. out lewis and clark or um Livingston and Stanley to discover these places well unbeknownst to them you know they'd already been discovered people had been living there first peoples and um but these tales of adventure and danger and everything that we love to read in a good wildlife story or a good story you know is all bound up so yes it became romanticized so um what you were what you bring into the book, and this is where it sort of cracks everything open and the rest of the book flows from, is this whole tale of big conservation, the bingos, the big international NGOs, and yes. somehow by default, some of the smaller ones that have come up are based around this character-driven adventure.
2: Yes, y- yes. And them are based on, I'm sorry, uh, go ahead a lot of them are based on on yeah the charisma of a character um the the adventurer the 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 brave man or brave lady and and the, the savior I, I i mean i i a lot of people don't like this but i i i call it the tarzan tarzan the tarzan, uh, <laughs> the tarzan uh, good
1: one <laughs> good one the tarzan um uh, mentality yeah so um you brought up a good point, and I think we need to just mention this one thing. How many TV documentaries, wildlife documentaries, that are character-driven, whether it's this new plague of reality TV adventure wildlife series, or um, even BBC context, and Attenborough comes to mind, um, who is one of the most respected guys today, um, yeah in terms of a, a bridge of bringing the natural world to the TV screen for yeah. masses in the Western world to see. But your point was, how many of them are black? How many of them are African? And we're not talking about a racial, racial issues here. Yeah. We're talking yeah. about which is what the book gets into—the disenfranchisement of the African community in the role yeah. of big conservation.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think you, you, you've, you've really hit the nail on the head in in that there, there is all these messages that that are that are being brought to the rest of the world about the wonderful biodiversity, wildlife, etc., that we have in Africa, which is a good thing, and I, and i I'd. I'd uh, I'd just like to say that the biggest problem with all that material is what it doesn't show or what you don't hear, and that's the African voices. Um, from the earliest ones to the most uh, recent um, ones you, you see on the, the TV networks, Africans are prominent by their total absence. Um, even, even, even when you have field assistants, you have drivers, that are shown on screen, they're not Africans. And, and this, this, this has become accepted as, as sort of the norm. And, and people even in Kenya, where I come from, watch these programs, and they've, they've come to accept that as the norm. Um, part, and partly this has also driven the narrative that, again, tourism, wildlife, safari tourism, is something that is for, is for white people. Or in Kenya, as we say, Wazungu, uh, because because this 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 is they are seen as the ideal. Right now, it's it's amazing that we have a lot of um, a lot of these places are quite costly to, to to visit, but we have a lot of really wealthy indigenous Kenyans now, but they don't even know of these places because these places are actually advertised um, in London and in New York and in, in Europe and other places, because that is almost part of the product, that it's a place you will come, and you'll be in the middle of Africa, and you will have a white tour guide. Um, in, in, the, in the places where hunting is allowed, in, in other countries, you will have a white hunting guide. And uh, you will you will be you will have a white white staff uh, um, a white manager in the facility etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's it's the out of Africa experience if I may borrow the title of the the movie of the mid eighties starred Meryl Streep it's very much that and and you would be amazed how much how much many of these facilities the lengths they go to to try and recreate that
1: well that's something I noticed um, on my very first safari to africa the tourist the group is ensconced and isolated from africans you've got the staff yeah. the waiters the waitresses the tent cleaners the room cleaners they're all african but there's no real bridge to talk to them no. the, the, the tourist yeah. is almost kind of kept from seeing them as people and um, yeah. this is what the book goes on to really highlight this this gap so at the moment we have to step away for break but stick with us because we are going to dig into exposing everything we've just talked about and hoping to reframe our listeners and the west's view of what conservation can be moving forward so stick with us we'll be right back
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World
1: back this is Ellie Weiss you're listening to Our Wild World with my guest Mordecai Ogata and we're talking about The Big Conservation Lie a short little book jam-packed full of history information and a must read because it is cracking open uh, truly where conservation needs to go from this point forward the world has changed so um, I think what we need to do is reiterate the, that there have been positive impacts of big conservation, so let's let's start there, and then we can segue into where this all kind of went off the rails and started instead of focusing on conservation became about
2: the product yeah I'd say that uh big conservation they they've they've played an important part in 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 establishing. The the structures that we do have, and certainly resourcing, resourcing what was what was a, a very very poorly resourced field at least at least um, with, with reference to Kenya. I think um, if 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 I try and put a time frame to it, I'd say between the nineteen sixties seventies, up to the nineties, they've 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 played a, a sort of a, Irreplaceable role, if if you will, and and even coming coming to my own personal uh, my own personal career, the first grant I ever got, um, which was to do my master's study, was 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 given to me by African Wildlife Foundation at a at a point when I did not have any name or reputation, or uh, or high specialization that maybe would have justified that, but um, uh, they they did support me and and. Uh, and it falls for the good um, I think coming forward, I think um, the, in a way we are almost um, looking at, at a sector that has become a victim of its own success or its own uh, the strength of its own message or its own hype because I think things have gone wrong when things have gone wrong after these, these organizations grew really big. And became brands and started branding conservation initiatives with the, their label, if, with their label, if you will. Um, they started branding state statutory authorities and organs with their label and their message. So, and, it, uh, so in a way, yeah.
1: you're saying it began to influence policy and politics.
2: Yes, yes, they, 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 they got very much into that. And and, and I think, and I think the, the, the blame, if you will, for that problem can be apportioned two ways. They, they, first of all, it's the, their need for power, these bingos, uh, their need to, to have this power and authority. But it's also been the, the, the sort of policy vacuum that existed in some of our statutory authorities. So you find, you find cases like when, when Kenya sends a delegation to CITES conference, a good chunk of those delegates from the Kenya government had actually sponsored to the conference by bingos. So whose message are they, are they taking out there to the CITES conference? Is it Kenya's message or is it the bingo message? I, I, I'd, I'd leave that to anyone who's dealt with donors to judge but um some of some of these some of these losses of 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 fidelity in in uh, our national policy is has been down to the the sort of dependency and vacuum that has been built on one hand by the weakness of the statutory body and on the other hand by the strength and success and wealth of the bingos
1: well wow, this is This is just very intense. It makes so many things fire up in my brain. So I'm trying to just sort of parse out what you just said. So we did make great strides in terms of conservation. Necessary strides, research, data, combined years of experience of people. Okay, they were white or foreign who lived and gathered this data and were able to raise funds to do so. So important things have been accomplished so what the twist is now and where we need to go is the voices that have been left out of this picture and it's become glaringly obvious there is a huge gap and that's the african voice so let's segue into that so we understand now that the branding of big conservation has sort of taken on a life of itself and become more about them than the goal although they are still accomplishing the goal and some example Mm -hmm. is okay you can adopt an elephant or name an elephant or identify a lion and go on a tour and see these known individuals a it's wildlife b it lives separately than we do See, it doesn't need us to survive in terms of doing its daily functions. But the money at stake here, maybe how we can get into this is, where does the money from big conservation end up going? So it used to be project-oriented, and now it's kind of top-heavy administration-oriented.
2: Yes. Yes. Right, right now, a lot of these organizations and their models and their message have become ends in themselves. And, and that, that is where the problem lies. I think it would be very difficult for obvious reasons to get exact figures. But I would say that the, the value, the, it's, it's, it's sort of convent, accepted convention that the value of, of wildlife, a good chunk of it is in the money tourists come to pay to, to see it, um, in, in many African countries. Right now we've reached that very strange point where the the money tourists pay to come and see wildlife I think I think pales pales in in, in comparison to the amount of donor funds that come in because of that wildlife. Or um, or
1: that actually go to affect the wildlife itself and those communities who must live with it on a day-to-day basis.
2: Yeah, yes, and, 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 and because, okay, that's where it's targeted. That's where it's supposed to go. But the fact is, it comes into organizations. And, and, um, and as such, wildlife has become precious to individuals because of how much money they can get as a result of purporting to save it. And so it's it's more important now to 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 be a sort of authority quote unquote on a certain species um than it is than it is to actually um influence the survival of that species.
1: And this is what I was just thinking the other day. In in the conservation language, yes. and you know, and you mentioned CITES. Wild Eyes yes. had a team at CITES, yes. it was the first time I wasn't there but um, that I actually got an idea of the inner workings of CITES, which is an interesting international treaty that is voluntarily um, abided by. And that's kind of all falling apart right now with South Africa, but that's a subject that we've covered in various other episodes. So what we're talking about here is... It's become more about the organization and their message and their brand and yes. what they say they're doing for the species. But the species exactly. themselves and in the language that we use is it's a commodity. Yes. So as much as we're talking about trans, you know, transnational wildlife crime, which is yes. huge, um, yes. but even in the conservation language, as you just said, we put a value as a commodity rhino horn elephant yeah. ivory
2: yeah.
1: so now this brings us back to a core part of your book conservation before big conservation came along to save yeah. africa's wildlife from africans
2: <laughs> perfectly put uh, i would i would say i would say that um that, that what, what has shifted is that, is that um, first of all, you, 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 you ticked off the first one, commodification. Wildlife suddenly became a commodity. And, and um, maybe, maybe the South African model where they're actually traded and sold, uh, traded back and forth between individuals.
1: And farmed. Rather, Let's not forget farming. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yes. And farmed um is actually more of an honest model because it's crass as it is, you see you see you see what is there. But you, you you see that in the case of Kenya, I would say at this moment, when an elephant is shot by a poacher and he takes away the tasks, the money he gets from selling those tasks is less than what a quote unquote conservationist gets from cutting open the belly of that elephant, spreading the entrails around, taking pictures and posting them on social media. The conservationist gets about 10 times what the poacher got.
1: And let's not forget the labeling. The African is the poacher and the big conservation is the savior. And transnational gangs are the bad guys.
2: Yes, the, these posts elicit all sorts of racist vitriol that that basically we cannot even repeat on on such a program. But that but that comes with the money, so so it's it's um it's it's become somewhat acceptable to 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 label people in this manner. You hear all sorts of horrible things about Africans and and about Asians who who apparently are the villains buying this ivory, and and. Uh, Life goes on. That is accepted as what you need to do to make money to save elephants. And, and, um, and in all this, the, the, the value or relationship that, that locals had with the wildlife is getting lost. And you hear you hear uh, what I think are, are some comical statements like someone saying, I'm trying to make Kenyans fall in love with wildlife. In, in, in um, traditional African societies, we did not love wildlife. We don't, we revere these animals. We admire them. We even, we even give brave people nicknames of, uh, taken from some of these animals that we admire. But we don't love them. We don't want to cuddle them. We don't want to, we don't want to pet them on the head and that kind of thing. So looking, seeking to cultivate love for wildlife in, the, in that manner in Africans is is a lost cause. But then again, um, as long as someone gives you money for it, it doesn't matter whether you succeed or not because that's the business.
1: So let's, we've got some time left in this section. So what is the answer here? And I've had this conversation with a couple of other people. It's like, okay, Africans don't need to love wildlife. Let's find a way to just secure the land, big conservation, or even small NGOs that are really successful and have good models that do include the communities as a critical part of their functionality yeah. in, in terms of running the programs, in terms of the communities and the elders being yes. a equal player in yes. on, on the playing field of what happens in this community so
2: I, i'd i'd say as a as i'd say as a principle we should approach this thing from the angle of looking at the 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 lives and livelihoods of local communities many of whom rely on these natural resources for their to live basically they have land the pasture the water etc wood fuel and these kind of things um, we need to focus on that and enhance or strengthen the way they do their thing in, in a way that will make it sustainable, environmentally sustainable, and re- reduce conflict between them and the wild animals. If we take care of the, of the communities, I feel, and their livelihoods, the wildlife will be all right.
1: Well, you bring um, up an you bring up an interesting point. I'm just going to interject here. Yeah. conflict between the wildlife and the people. Yes. I think somewhere in your book you mentioned that or I've read recently that it's really not conflict between wildlife and people because no matter where you are, are on earth, there is going yeah. to be conflict between carnivores and humans. When right. an animal wants what we want and interferes yeah. with our ability to get what we need, agriculture stock whatever and mm-hmm. a carnivore comes in you know we are the first ones to kill the carnivores so exactly. um, but in terms of live coexistence yes, side coexistence. by side acceptance of wildlife this is this is the gap that's missing right now
2: yeah and and the the thing the thing is the thing is uh, we we, uh, we as in the the conservation sector have created this have created this perception of of war, conflict. There's there's one side has to win, and and a few years ago, you've, I'm sure you've had an oft repeated phrase that wildlife has to pay its way. Right. Local communities have to make money from wildlife for them to accept accept it. It's an that's a very unfortunate statement because it implies that Africans are sort of dumb enough not to have any appreciation or. Uh, for for anything other than material, like we, there's no way we could revere these animals and live with them if someone didn't pay us to do so. And, and this is the, this. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And the danger of this approach is is that we are trying to create sustainability in a system out of a finite resource, i.e., money.
1: Right. It's so this this pain. is where yeah. the benchmark shifted from yes. living with earth and let's call it the yes. resource earth yeah. to bringing it breaking it down into multiple resources commodities yeah, so, it, yeah and somewhere in this morass of shift the african community got left out so on yeah. that note we need to take a break and we're gonna come back and pick that up and find a way forward so stick with me this is Ellie Weiss and my guest Mordecai Ogata and we're talking about the big conservation lie follow um, us on Facebook and on Twitter and uh, there's a lot more going on here than we can even begin to cover in this particular conversation so read the book it's now available on Kindle so stick with us and we'll be right back
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Stimulating talk. Gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World
1: Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest Mordecai Ogata. And we are talking about The Big Conservation Lie. A very small book packed with information that is a must read because it really is breaking open the change of models that conservation needs to take in terms of what we just discussed in the last section sustainability on a finite resource earth with uh, an increasing human population and a decreasing ability to support not only us but support the various parts that make up earth that we depend on so once again we're not giving away the book here. You have to read the book to understand what's going on. So what Mordecai and I are conversing on is why this book is so important, how it's cracking open, the model, and the way forward. So um, what is the way forward? So as I would said in the beginning, I haven't finished the book yet. We're not going to give it away, um, but the majority of the book is laying out a blueprint Of what needs to change so let's hear from you as an African voice that did benefit from big conservation growing up you're a millennial a little beyond millennial because you're trying to help the younger generation the, the African Millennials reconnect and sort of bypass the big conservation lie that set them apart from the resources and Pull it all back together. How are we going to do that?
2: Well, it, yeah, it's it's it, um, it, it is as you, you know quite a complex problem. But if I start from the donor end, maybe because right now I'm in the US, um, donors there, there are two levels of donors. There's the big the big foundation donors, and then there's the, the individual who's who, who's come who's become very important. The the Those who can give anything from a hundred to a few thousand dollars. It is very important that the individuals must be skeptical. And I don't mean skeptical in a bad way. I mean skeptical in a good way, because I believe you cannot be skeptical about something you don't care about. Um, people who solicit donations to do conservation work in Africa, they suffer no scrutiny whatsoever. Americans are, 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 are famous for scrutinizing closely any offer from the credit card company, any, any new food product, any, any new phone, phone service they're offered. But when someone says, I'm saving elephants in Africa, you hand over your money and you feel good and you walk away. We need more scrutiny. So um, due
1: diligence.
2: Due diligence, simple as that. Simple as that. Due diligence, and and if I move to the large foundation donors, some some private foundations, some governmental organizations, I think a rule of thumb that would be good for them to introduce is that is simply that a given percentage or a given amount of any grant should be give should be put towards audit of what's being done, or monitoring of what's being done, and independent monitoring. Um, you, you, because simply because some of these are large amounts of money. If it goes wrong, it goes wrong in a big way. And individual donors also have to understand that long gone are the days when the worst thing that could happen to your money is that it gets wasted. Right now, the worst thing that can happen to your money is that it can be used to perpetrate an injustice.
1: I and, think it's and, what we call leakage.
2: Yes, it's li- leakage. Yeah, we used to think leakage could only, oh, he used it to go for a holiday in Mombasa or something. No, right now he could, he could use it to take someone land, someone's land away. He could use it to disenfranchise local people. So we need to have that greater scrutiny. Um, because I, I, I believe that those who, who give, both agencies and individuals, it comes from a good place. It comes from a place of meaning to do well. The problem is the broker between us and the elephants.
1: Ah, good way or, to put it. Or,
2: or, yeah. And, and, and that's the person we really need to, need to sort of put on a, on a shorter leash. So how, um, do we, yeah.
1: how do we go about transferring what has been accomplished in big conservation over these decades to, these are the buzzwords, community-based conservation? How does the donor... Do their due diligence and be skeptical and scrutinize for their donation, whether large or small, uh, that community-based conservation yeah. is really happening.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I, that's, that's that's a good it's a, it's a good question, and I think I think the failing, if, if if I may call it, or a shortcoming on the on the part of donors, is that the way our world is now. We've, become, we've come into this instant gratification world. A donor, who, especially one who gives a few million dollars or, or, or some big chunk of money, wants, wants it to happen yesterday. You know, typically the, the, the highly wealthy person is this type A personality, industrialist. He, he says, snaps his finger and things happen. That's how things happen in his corporation. Um, so they're rarely willing to invest time and one thing, if you to have genuine, prior, informed consent for anything you do in communities, at least in Kenya where I come from, you have to take time. If someone, that's a rule of thumb, if someone does it in two months, he's lying. Simple as that. And it it's what I've already sa-
1: you know, always said, yeah. it took us a long time to get here. Yes. So changing isn't going to happen overnight.
2: It's, it's not going to happen overnight. And but- and I and I think I think it's it's very it's just important for the donors to appreciate the need to invest time alongside their money because they need to understand that again, conservation people, when you offer me five million dollars, I say, Oh yes, thank you, give me the money and you tell me can you do it in two months? I tell you, Yes, sir, I can. And then I'll I'll go back to Kenya and start cutting corners left, right and center. So they, they need to they need to invest time. Um be prepared to invest time. Now to bring it, to bring it really down to, to the communities, I think we need to translate things into language. I mean, I, I, see, I see community lease agreements, very complex documents written in English, and it's about a community somewhere out in northern Kenya where even Kiswahili is not that widespread. So you start wondering... Who 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 agreed on this? So you have elite capture of, of the resource, so you have you these these uh, practitioners end up coming in and creating an elite, co- usually calling them elders, and they are probably not usually the elders who are there traditionally. And then they get these people to sign on to these agreements. I mean, and some elders are people there by virtue of their offices. I was a member of a council of elders in a community in Northern Kenya. I come from Western Kenya. And by the time I was in that Council of Elders, I, do, I hadn't reached anywhere near the threshold of someone to be called an elder. But it, I was even better because there were some people in that Council of Elders who are not even Kenyan. Yet we are making resource-use decisions. And this is disenfranchisement. And, and I think that is the greatest danger because... It only succeeds now because it's driven by huge amounts of money, but money is finite. And when that money runs out, there'll be a backlash, and that's the greatest danger, I feel.
1: And that's sort of what's happening now. I don't think we have a lot of time to get into it, but perhaps we can have another conversation at another time with the land invasions. So we're sort of coming full circle back to where we began, which is, once again... Why you need to read this book, The Big Conservation Lie, because it pulls together and connects all these dots from the historical transfer of power to the subjugation of Africa by military rule to, let's call it, adventurous, charismatic, uh, game warden idea uh, of adventure and romanticized to what we've been talking about into these branded conservation organizations. But a part that we didn't really get to today is the land itself and, you know, the politics here, the wildlife act and the sway that big money and big conservation can have on a country's politics, such as Kenya. And that's happened a lot in the last Twenty to thirty years that this power has been brought to bear, not only yeah. on community elders. It's sort of like a bagman who's been hijacked at, at the source <laughs> to kind of carry on the company line and convince the community who can't read this document. So to, as an example, that this is in their benefit or in their best yeah. interests. And yes. somewhere along the line, it's not so. What's happening now, and we're seeing it not just in Kenya, in a lot of places, Zimbabwe, uh, South Africa, that this line that we've been fed, not only international conservationists like myself, but the people who that conservation being is being implemented upon. So, we've got just a couple minutes here. This kind of leads to education. Everybody yes. says we've got to educate the Africans. We've got to educate the communities. Indeed. So, it's not so much who we're educating, but what is the message of education? Is it culturally and geographically and species appropriate?
2: Um yeah, the the education we are bringing on is, is not, um, yeah, it, it doesn't fit. It's, it's, it's not education because what we, are, what, uh, we the con- conservation sector, are trying to do is really like, bring, them, bring communities to heal. That's what we, we call it education, but that's what we are trying to do. We are trying to indoctrinate them to, to our, our message. That's, that's why you find some people can go to a pastoralist community and suddenly vilify livestock production. They vilify um, a movement of, of livestock over, over long distances. And this is, this is a, a livelihood built over thousands of years. But rather than trying to strengthen that livelihood and make it more relevant to the present situation and present day, we are trying to do away with it and turn these people into tour guides or waiters in camps, etc., uh, or chefs. And and this is what we are calling education and benefits and jobs. So as you rightly say, it it is taking on a a, a colonial color to it. And this is what we must change. And um, part of that change has to come from within us, the indigenous people. In that we have to stand up intellectually, not violent. We have to stand up intellectually and take our place at the table where those discussions are being held.
1: Which is what you and your co-author, um, John Ambaria, are doing with this book. And it's exactly. it's time. Um, I, for one, am just thrilled to read it. It's shocking. It's an eye-opener. Um, I know many of the players and a lot of the history, but at the same time, it was very eye-opening. It is very eye-opening in the gaps in my own knowledge. And as what you're saying, these has, has this has been by design, um, yes. in terms of big cons- conservation, it leaves out this message to indoctrinate the donor in the world yes. to this model while also spending decades of history removing the African from his from his, his or her own landscape. So in these couple of minutes, we have left. how? How is your book being received in Kenya?
2: Um with with uh the, there's a lot of silent consternation I think but but by and large there's it's it's been received as as an eye opener there's a lot of people who have said I'd never looked at things that way there's a lot of people who, because of their various positions cannot say it overtly but have called me privately and said thank you for writing it so so far it's 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 been gratifying in that it's helped me learn a lot about the people and organisations around me. It's it's also helped it's also helped me learn a lot from people who come and add contributions to what to what we've already said and say and say this is also happening in certain other places. So I actually know a lot more now than I knew when we wrote the book, and I think I think uh, my co-author is probably. Having a similar experience, maybe 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 more up close because he's in Kenya right now. But um, it's 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 been pretty gratifying, and it's it's important. Even those who speak out in opposition to it are appreciated because we've started a, a conversation. And the most important thing is dialogue, and that's what's been missing for the last three decades. And that's why we are where we are because there's not been enough dialogue.
1: So this this book was a must must to be written, and now that it's been written um, in in a very readable, enjoyable way and highlighting a lot of information that a lot of people just don't know, um, it's important to understand. And as you just said, it's laid the groundwork to open the dialogue, and that's what conservation, a revisioning and a reversioning of big conservation – needs to happen. We do need the West. We do, conservation does need money. And, um, you know, wildlife doesn't need it. They don't have pockets. They're not going to the store. What they yes. need is space to do what it does.
2: And, and, and one thing I may add, if, if we add really quickly, is that the role of the West is, is, cannot be underestimated. Even in this book, no publisher in Kenya would touch it. The publisher who published it is based in the U.S.,
1: I figured that out at the first paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) So, so in in other words, what you're saying is there's silence from some quarters because of what it lays open, kind of flays down to the bone. But at the same time, I can imagine there's various conversations happening on both sides of the fence, the haves and the have-nots. This is a voice for the have-nots in terms of the money and the machinery that makes big conservation work. And yes. it's kind of a call to action and a revision by big conservation to take a good look at itself and revise its own methodology to be more inclusive of everyone at the table rather than fighting over the pieces of the pie that is planet Earth and its various species and bring yes. it all back together under one huge web that is life on earth, yeah, wow. This has been absolutely fascinating, and I think we're gonna have to have a couple more conversations as this moves along, and the book Certainly. filters out, and we barely got to cover anything so well we covered we covered a lot we covered the background of why this book is. Is, as time has come. So as this moves forward, I would love to have you back and uh, we talk about the reception of what's happening and, you know, the shifts that are happening on both sides of this fence. So Indeed. meanwhile, unfortunately, today we're out of time. That went really fast. So thank you, Mordecai. Welcome. And once again, visit uh, Mordecai Ogada's Facebook page. Uh, There's Twitter, there's a Facebook page for The Big Conservation Lie itself. Mm -hmm. The cover of the book itself says an awful lot, and it's jam-packed with must-read information. So follow along on Our Wild World and Wild Eyes Foundation and the authors and buy on Kindle or softcover The Big Conservation Lie and become a part of the conversation as we move forward. So today we're out of time. Once again, thank you, Mordecai.
2: Thank you very much for
1: having me. And uh, you're welcome. Thanks for a great conversation, and we'll be talking more soon. Meanwhile, this is Ellie Weiss, my guest Mordecai, and Our Wild World.
0: Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week, and what you can do right now.